Shot Tower, the real NBA fantasy NBA hybrid podcast brought to you by Kyle, Jalen, and Michael. We are in week 10. There are two six-game races in the East and the West with the Bucks creating a little separation in the East and the Lakers with a little separation in the West, though they both lost their Christmas games yesterday. So uh, I think there's some interesting discussions there. But before we get to that, want to call out a little uh, production change that we're um, doing or handling right now. Our um, main production expert, Kyle is in Rome, Italy, because he's a genius and his wife is a genius. And that's what happens with geniuses. They go to Rome, Italy. So we're recording from Rome and from Baltimore, and we're doing it on Skype. It may sound a little different for our loyal listeners, uh, but we still think this is going to sound wonderful for you. So um, here we go. Clippers, Lakers, where do you guys want to start? Sorry, we're starting with the Bucks and Sixers. Um, Christmas Day game, Joel Embiid had one red shoe and one green shoe, and I think that was the key to the game. What do you guys think? Had to be. Yeah, yeah, there were a lot of uh, Christmas colored shoes, and uh, you know, oh, what's Javon Carter for the Suns actually wears two different color shoes every game, so I think people are just sort of they're just jumping on his his island. He, <laughs> He had a monopoly on this sort of thing up until Christmas Day. Um, yeah, we saw a few people, actually. Uh, Damian Lee, who had a massive game, was wearing one red shoe and one green shoe. Um, somebody else, Will Barton. Will Barton had red and green as well. Um, and I'm sure there were some other uh, um, color pairs like that. Uh, but For you yeah. sneakerheads, did you know what? shoes they had did they ha- all have Joel the same? Embiid was wearing the Under Armors as well as Will Barton which was the only reason the Will Barton hmm. popped up I can't remember what Damian Lee wears um you, you know, would think he'd guys. have to you would think he'd have to wear Under Armors he's, I'm almost he's, he's family yes. <laughs> he's, uh, Steph Curry's brother-in-law I mean you you feel like yeah. you've got to get some free Under Armors in that situation I, I I think there's some obligation and some freebies I think it goes both ways there so yeah that must have been that um and yeah I mean there for for the sneakerheads out there there were a ton of great shoes yesterday the other one I want to call out before we get into the actual basketball is um Gordon Hayward who uh wears Anta had ugly sweater christmas shoes uh which i thought pretty tight so um gordon hayward also has barbershop tennis barbershop shoes which what What is that yeah you should you should look this up they're like all they're like all gray with like a silhouette of his slicked back hair on them (laughs) um it's um it's a lot it's a lot um I feel like maybe it's unfair to say this, but I feel like it's a shoe that could be co-opted by movements which are not the most uh, accepting of different types of people. I love that that's the identifiable Gordon Hayward characteristic is the hair. Yeah. I mean, it's nice hair, but I mean, it's, it's just, nice. I, of course. I feel like he's he's doing a bit too much with the with the silhouette on the shoe. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, I'm looking at it right now and I do not love that shoe. <laughs> so. I'll confess, I saw none. I saw none of the shoes. I saw none of the games yesterday. I uh, League Pass works here in Europe, um, but when they're nationally televised games, I can't get them until three hours after they end. And when they're not starting at all 
until 6 p.m. <laughs> that, that usually means that it's too late for me. So I had right. to go on. Um, I, I got the, I got to listen. So I was able to, for instance, listen to the Boston broadcasters in the Boston game and the Philly broadcasters in the Philly game. Um, I don't know exactly why I chose those. I could have easily chosen um, Toronto and Milwaukee, too. But, you know, East Coast bias, I guess. Wait, uh, wait, you listen to the Boston broadcasters during the Philly game? No, during the Boston game. Okay, I was like, wow, this is next level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Boston broadcasters were doing the, the Philly-Milwaukee game, too. Yeah, <laughs> just just to get a little hate in. Yeah. How did it change your read of the games, Kyle, to be just hearing the play-by-play rather than seeing Well, it's tough, too, time. because it's not radio play-by-play, so you can't really get oh, a good visualization yeah. of the game. You're more getting, like, the commentary where they expect that the visual is going to be there. So it really wasn't all that effective, but it was Christmas and I wanted to feel part of the NBA. So <laughs> I experienced it whatever way I could. We went out uh, for a nice Roman dinner um, at noon and walked through the Doria Pamphili park. And I saw uh, a woman wearing a Lakers sweatshirt. And I was really tempted <laughs> to ask her if she was going to stay up to till, I think it started at like four 30 hour time, <laughs> see if she was going to stay up and watch it. Um, but uh, you know, Christmas is, uh, it's a, it's a private holiday. You know, let people have their own time. Um, but I, I uh, love that. And I love the reach of the NBA. That you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brooklyn uh, Nets too represented here in Monteverde the other day. I'm, nice. I, you know, I'm just seeing it around. It, you know, once you get down in the city, you people, you see people with, you know, NBA hats all the time. But, um, you know, I can never be sure whether they're tourists down there or not. Up here, I'm pretty sure I'm running into, you know, native Italians. Right. Right. I thought there, I thought there was a ratings issue. It doesn't sound like there's a ratings issue. In Rome, <laughs> at least. Uh, but no, it's funny. You said, uh, you said Roman and uh, because I listened to so many NBA podcasts, I immediately was like, get Roman. I thought we were doing an ad read for uh, get Roman, but we don't have enough listeners for that yet. But in the future, you know, if you want to, if you want to sponsor us, we will do your get Roman ad reads for all your ED needs out there. Yeah, I mean, I think we just did it. Roman, give us a call. <laughs> ready for this? Yeah. As so. soon as we get more than like 3.5 listeners. <laughs> uh, but and the good thing is those 3.5 are extremely loyal. Yeah. Um, they were upset about our little break. They've been calling for us to come back. And so here we are. We're going to talk about the Bucks and the Sixers. Uh, it was an interesting um, game uh, visually, Kyle, just to see the colors were great. There's not the <laughs> Christmas stuff going on. Um, oh, one my of the things, goodness. One I, of the things, I, go I ahead, can't stand the, I can't stand the Bucks. Uh, they're, I, they're wearing their black jerseys, which had these, like, green and also, like, blue tones like stripes across the front yeah. those are like the ugliest buck jerseys in my opinion the i think philly was wearing their cream city jerseys which are nice uh but yeah i don't know I, someone tweeted this that like there should have been more of like a rollout more of an event for these christmas day jerseys um which nike i feel like red. didn't yeah nike didn't really do whereas like i remember back in the day when the nba was doing their like sleeved jerseys which was like a real weird thing and lebron <laughs> yeah. would like tear the sleeves off the jerseys because he's like i shoot bad enough already now you're gonna put this itchy constricting right. thing on the jerseys to mess me up even more um but yeah i just remember the lakers uh heat 
uh, around that time, and they had the sleeved all red jerseys and the Lakers, and it just it was awesome. And we didn't really get a chance to see that. It was like at least one team had good jerseys in all these matchups, but the other team didn't. Like the Raptors had right. black jerseys, and people were like they should have wore red, but I like the Raptors black jerseys. But the Celtics have this like weird colored green jersey and it yeah. they also have ge as their sponsor so the whole jersey just looks like a ge ad because it fits in perfectly <laughs> with the the color and like style of the font on the jersey well here's here's the thing about that celtics raptors game though completely agree can't believe the raptors weren't in red but they were playing in toronto on the black court with the gold lettering and yeah. both teams both teams cool. yeah both teams had that gold lettering and i thought brought it all together it was kind of awesome to watch in that sense um i i I, you know so um good on the raptors for avoiding i guess the obviousness of the green and red here and 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 doing something that looked uh pretty sweet but i think you're right there was some missed opportunity here because if you saw and um we're, we're jumping all over the place here but if you the lakers from last year i think it was i may have that wrong it may have been a couple of years but they had these amazing christmas day jerseys that were white and it was yeah. sort of a winter ice snow theme thing like those were some of the best christmas jerseys i've ever seen yeah i don't know what it is i don't really like these like new age lakers jerseys they yeah. they've got all these stars on them it kind of looks like an uh, like a fourth graders imitation of a Lakers jersey jersey like <laughs> I think that's my issue with the Nike's jerseys is that some of them look like college jerseys or high school jerseys yeah and I'm just like this is the NBA they're not supposed to look like that they're supposed yeah. to be like I don't know more regal somehow um but anyways we're, we're supposed to be talking about Buck Sixers so um, something about the Buck Sixers that did not look good to me is is Giannis coming down. I think it was his first um, three-point attempt of the game. It was around the top of the uh, the top of the three-point line, and it was one of the ugliest three-pointers I've seen him take. It just sort of clanked off the rim to the left side of the backboard, and it looked ugly. And I think that was the whole game right there. We, we, we could break it down. Him missing that shot, Joel Embiid not having to cover him out there as Giannis went 0 for 7 from 3 made his twos much more difficult. The game was over early because of threes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. It seemed like Giannis came out with the intention to maybe, you know, I mean, the Bucks probably have the pregame lineup, so they know they probably maybe had some indication that uh, Embiid was going to guard Giannis. I think he's done it in the past. Uh, they also have Horford, who also guarded Giannis when Embiid was on the bench, but they probably had some indication that that was going to be the case, and therefore Giannis maybe wanted to come out, set the tone early, maybe knock down a couple threes, yeah. and then see if he could draw Embiid out of the paint. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, the exact opposite happened. Uh, he <laughs> right. missed it those early threes, and he kept missing them, and so Embiid could just kind of keep backing up. Yep. And what we saw was sort of a masterclass in defending Giannis, and I don't mean to suggest that this is something that can be duplicated by every single team in the league, because last time I checked, not everyone <laughs> has a seven-foot center in Joel Embiid who's uh, mobile enough to just retreat, keep his hands high, who's big enough and strong enough to not be just blown up and pushed out of the play when Giannis is coming full full steam right. ahead against him. So, well, I mean, I don't think this is something other teams can duplicate right. in mass, but, I mean, it was literally, like, I think the best possible job you can do 
on Giannis is what Embiid did. And I think overall that might be one of the best games of Embiid's career, certainly yeah. of the of the season. He was dominant on both ends. He was knocking down threes himself. Um, he didn't turn the ball over a lot, which is like a huge bugaboo for him. Um, he's not as efficient as people think. You know, if you look at their numbers, I think uh, Nikola Jokic has been way more efficient in previous seasons. I think Embiid is like maybe 47 to 51 percent from the field, which is like not what you expect from a center who's getting a lot of dunks, you know. You think of someone like Rudy Gobert, who is not shooting and and not doing one on one moves, but he's in like the high 60s or in the 60s and the high 50s. So, yeah, it was just it was everything went right for Embiid uh, last night. Definitely. And I think the other thing that helps there is having another giant four who can um switch there who can cover the stretchier Brooke Lopez, that sort of thing. Other teams just don't have that luxury at that at, at the four and five. So, uh, and, and um, it's interesting. And B did talk about basically how well he played after the game, acknowledging that he's healthy and that when he's healthy, this is what he can do. So um, I'd yeah. love, I'd love to see it. <laughs> Yeah, Kyle, what were your thoughts about the game? I, I, I assume you're saying you were listening um, and you didn't get a chance to fully like get the full experience of it. But like as a Sixers fan, as someone who's sort of been rooting for them, who has high hopes for their season, what were some of your thoughts? Well, Ben Simmons is on my fantasy team, so I'm always paying pretty close attention to him. And I, you know, from what I could tell, listening to the game, um, he had a tremendous impact on it. And the box score shows that as well. You know, he went seven for 10 from the field, um, comes down with 13 rebounds, 14 assists, um, couple, you know, three steals, two blocks. Um, and I was, what I was most surprised by was as I was scrolling through Twitter, everyone was, was, um, I mean, this is clearly Celtics Twitter doing this, um, was dishing on Simmons in these like long lines of um, Tatum is better than Simmons, Brown is better than Simmons. I can't even remember. They're like there was like a list of like five other players that people were just like you know sort of just you know jokingly going down the line of all these people that were better than Simmons. Um, and I don't know if he needs that jump shot that everyone says that he's going to need if he impacts the game. Uh, the way that he does here. Now, obviously, the Sixers would prefer for him to be able to open up the floor more. Um, but they dominated the Bucks today, you know, yesterday. Yeah. Um, and from every indication that I see, he was a huge part of it. And he, if you would have seen it and seen that first quarter, especially, I don't know if it came through the broadcast, but he was extremely aggressive uh, with the ball, getting the ball up the court, initiating the offense really quickly uh, when they were like, it, um, it was great to see. And that was the offensive difference for the Sixers. That was setting up everything. And the little Eurostep play that he had uh, that I did see reproduced on Twitter was marvelous. Um, you know, plus nine, seven for 10 from the field. I, I just don't know what you can, what kind of problems you can really have with that. I, um, I mean, 14 assists, two turnovers. That's a seven to one ratio. Who would yeah, take thought is that? Three just, steals, two blocks. Like it's an incredible line. Do what they've done. 
put more shooting around him. And yeah. he has a lot of other shooters around him. And when they click, it works. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I think I think you're right to sort of push back on the narrative that he, that he needs a jump shot or he's like this insanely flawed player who's impossible to build around. Like, I think in the era of, like, advanced analytics, of, like, hyper-analysis, of, like, constant news cycles, we tend to, like, make everything a binary of can you win with this guy or not? Like, I mean, the answer for some people is probably no, right? If you're overly reliant on Rajon Rondo right now, you're in trouble. Uh, But I don't think that's the case with Ben Simmons yet, even though that's, like, the joke that people like to say. You know, he's 6'8", Rajon Rondo. But, like, Except for 6'8", Rajon Rondo can guard power forwards and switch on to centers. He can switch on to Giannis when, if you need him to. I mean, it's like, that's the difference. Yeah, I think the issue for Rondo was that after his injuries, his defense completely fell off the map. So not only was he unable to shoot, uh, but he also couldn't defend at an elite level. And Ben Simmons is obviously like an elite defender. He's like probably going to be an all-league defender. Maybe he's like a second-team all-defense this year. And so not only is he giving you the defensive end, I mean, he he is their pace when Embiid isn't on the floor or when Embiid is 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 behind the play. He is the pace. He's pushing the pace. He gets out in transition. He finds shooters. So I think there's more there are more positives than negatives with him. But I think the only thing I would say is that he doesn't I don't think he needs the three or like a pull up three or anything. Maybe a corner three would would go a long way to helping him. But I think more so he needs to be more willing to initiate and play through contact to get to the free throw line. And so if I have any issues with his like long term and sort of like postseason viability for the Sixers, it's his free throw percentage. Uh, he was only or one just, for two from the line this 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 game. So, I mean, it's not Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Relevant. Or just the sheer volume would be an yeah. issue too. He needs to be able to get to the line more. Yeah, that that's my point is that he doesn't get to the line a lot and I think that's like you know, on purpose or like something that comes out naturally because he's like aware that he's a poor free throw shooter. So he avoids constant contact instead of going through it. I, I tweet this like literally every time I watch them play from our shot tower uh, Twitter account. Like I, he he's so frustrating for me to watch sometimes because he's six, eight has a head of steam and there'll be like one person back and then like a second person kind of at the at the on the block in like transition defense and he'll just kick it out instead of just attacking that situation or it'll be one-on-one he'll attack he'll get a little bump from a smaller guy and he'll fade away and shoot a layup and he's still wide open because he's in the air the other guy's not but he's fading away instead of going through the contact and finishing the play for for an and one like someone like jimmy butler is way smaller much less physical than him is so much better at just going through the guy picking up his dribble so he gets the continuation and scoring. And I think that's the that's the thing for Ben Simmons that has to come. Like LeBron yeah, that's wasn't clearly a, because Jimmy Butler wants to get to the line and Ben Yeah, yeah. I mean I th- I think that's the thing. I was curious, Jalen, if you would talk a little bit about I know you you've been watching the Heat and watched that that Heat and Sixers game and the the zone defense um you know, formula that the Heat um, put out there that then got repeated by the Mavs after that um, and seemed to be the idea that, you know, this is going to be how you attack the Sixers. And part of that has to do with Simmons' lack of a jump shot. And I'm curious, what did you see yesterday when the Bucks tried that again? 
Yeah, so I can't remember if they went to it, like you said, in the third quarter or the fourth quarter at all, but they definitely, the Bucks definitely went to a zone at one point. And I think it did help them uh, get back in the game, but I also think what really happened is that um, Josh Richardson was hot from three, and the 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 Sixers had a huge lead, and they just kind of, the entire, like, um, awareness level, the intensity level just dropped for the Sixers. And so they started settling from even more threes that weren't falling. They weren't penetrating that zone. They just, they weren't playing with the same energy. So I don't know how much like it's really relevant how well the zone did. But I think, I think what I would say is the Sixers are a big team and uh, they don't have like a typical perimeter creator. So going to the zone is not a bad idea. I think someone said on Twitter that it creates more variance in play, right? If they get hot from three, you're in trouble. Right. Um, if they, if you can't find your man, find a man and box out within the zone, they can kill you on the boards with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid and Al Horford. Um, so there's there's a chance that it doesn't work, but I think the theory of it is sound in that this is a team that you know, at their best, Joel Embiid is just going to dominate on the block, right? He's going to get deep position. He's going to score in the post. If you send doubles, maybe he makes intelligent passes. We swing it around. We get Ben Simmons going downhill. This is a team that wants to get out in transition, you know? So if you can limit that by playing the zone, I think it's a good strategy. But I also think that nothing is created equal, right? Like I remember I was a manager on the basketball team at the University of Miami and we're playing Syracuse, right? It's the ACC. Everybody plays Syracuse. Jim Beheim's zone is like, uh, it's, it's like (laughs) synonymous with his name, you know, right? And, and basically he recruits players to play in that zone. Like Michael Carter Williams, all these people, it's like six, five to six, six guards with long arms. And like you, it makes it so hard to pass in the zone. I remember there was a timeout, and I don't remember what the instruction was, but Jim Larinaga, the coach for UM, was like, why aren't we doing this? And they're like, we literally can't pass the ball because they're huge. Like, we can't make this exact <laughs> pass that you're trying to tell us to make because they're so big. That's and like think, Wesley Johnson and those guys. Yeah, exactly. Who never really made it in the NBA, but, yeah, they're just like, it's yeah. just all it's, it's branches. Hard. Every year they do better in the in the tournament because all, all of a sudden you've got these teams who are really good, but like it's college. So how many reliable shooters are actually on your team and how many like large size people again. on your team that are going to be able to react to the zone well? So, I mean, I think it was the same thing with the Heat. The Heat have uh, Derek Jones Jr. who is just like um, – arms and legs personified, you know, as Stan, uh, what was it? Scott Van Pelt used to say, he's all arms and legs. He can't buy pants at the mall. Um, like he's super long. Uh, they've got Bam who's super long and super mobile and they can, they actually like inverted their defense in some ways. And they put, uh, Derek Jones Jr. And Jimmy Butler at the top. Derek Jones Jr. Plays the four, right? But he's in the typical guard position a lot of times in their zone in the two, three. So they're putting a lot of size at the top. They've got Bam on the back line. Um, and then they've got these other guys, whoever else is on the floor to like help Bam out and get in there and rebound. And so I think that was how they were able to be effective. Now, even in that game, the the Sixers started to figure out they moved Embiid from the top of the zone to like the middle. And once he was getting to the middle, it's a lot easier for him to like work his way into a real post up or kick out to shooters. The passes get a lot easier. So I think I don't think that you're going to just solve the Sixers with a zone. If they do, then that's like an indictment on Brett Brown. It's an indictment on the players on the team. I think there's enough shooting. I think there's enough intelligence. 
um, that no, they shouldn't just be beaten by the zone. Yeah, agree with all of that. And um, one thing I want to call out is uh, in relation to this Bucks Sixers game as we wrap it up here is the fact that the Sixers shot 47.7% in that game. Uh, they had one player, James Ennis III, who did not shoot well. He was 0 for 4. Everybody else shot relatively well from three, though Simmons didn't take a three. Furkan Korkmaz. Four for five. And so... It's not going like that's not sustainable. A team shooting three point percentage at forty eight percent, and Giannis having as bad of a game as he did. So I don't want to read too much into this game. I think we saw a couple of variability edges here, and we don't really know what this looks like. Yeah, totally. And I mean, before we move on, I don't know if Kyle, you have more to say, but I think I feel like this game was. I don't know. I feel like watching this game. So going into these these Christmas Day games, there's all this talk about the ratings, how the ratings are down. There's all this talk about how this is like one of the worst slates of Christmas Day games in a while because the Bucks and Sixers, this was a good matchup, but like it was Rockets Warriors, which, which was expected to be a bad matchup. The Pelicans and Nuggets were on, which is like the Pelicans without Zion. No one's really interested in that. Uh, the Raptors, Siakam's injured. Norman Powell's injured. Marcus Gasol's injured. So like not really the real Raptors team. And yet, like what happened was the Sixers killed the Bucks, you know, which no one expected, right? Yep. The, the Warriors beat the Rockets, which no one expected. <laughs> yep. The Pelicans, the Pelicans beat Denver, which no one expected. Like, and so I feel like these Christmas Day games were a reminder of what I think sports is supposed to be about. It's like, it's like. Um, WWE wrestling, except it's not scripted. You know, it's like we don't actually know what's going to happen, and on any given night, anything can happen, and that's why you watch. Um, so, I mean, I wanted to say that, and then also, I feel like this game was sort of the encapsulation of what the Sixers uh, championship hopes look like and rest on. You know, yeah, dominant yeah. defense. We can stop Giannis and we can stop Pascal Siakam, right? So they've got Embiid and Horford to throw at Giannis and Pascal Siakam. And if you take away a team's best player, you know, or limit them significantly, it's going to be tough. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, they have unless a, they that have best a, player is backed up by Paul George or backed yeah. up by LeBron James or Anthony Davis or whoever. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they have a they have a blueprint that I think works, especially in the Eastern Conference, because they match up really well with these teams in the East. And then Tobias Harris was hot for much of the game. Um, Josh Richardson was hot for much of the game. Ben Simmons played a really clean game, like we said, with those few turnovers. He got out in transition. Um, He scored his little, you know, three foot fadeaway layups and things. So. This is what it looks like when the Sixers are at their peak, and obviously the Bucks aren't going to play this bad. Giannis isn't going to be this bad, but I mean, this is why people believe that the the Sixers can get to the finals. Yeah, yeah, and one of the other distinctions I saw in some of the post gamers uh, stuff too was was along the lines of what you were just saying, Jalen. The 76ers are a playoff squad. This is a team built for that. The Bucks still a lot of questions there in that regard. So. Yeah. And I'm, and I mean, yeah, I just wanted to I feel like I'm responding to a lot of Twitter narratives out there. But like, I mean, I'm just on Twitter a lot into the NBA a lot. Like what what are your you all your thoughts on 
like the the fact that we're all sort of doing the Bucks a disservice by being like, eh, show us in the playoffs. We, we don't really <laughs> care about this. It, like, how do you people do you have any guilt for that, or you know, how should we feel about this regular season for the Bucks? I, I do a little. Their point, <laughs> yeah, their point differential. I mean, I don't feel guilt about it because I don't really feel that way. I the reason why I wanted to lead with Sixers Bucks was because. I do think it was one of the great upsets of the day and it wasn't such an anomalous upset like the Warriors over the Rockets. Um, you know, it, it's an upset that s- tells us something about the season. And, um, and I think that that's important. I actually, um, you know, and then there's also the reason that any chance I can get to avoid having to talk about the Clippers winning a game, any game, but especially one against the Lakers, <laughs> um, I'll take, uh, so I don't feel too guilty about it. I really um, – I think that that point differential is real. I don't think that they miss Brogdon as much as even people have been saying after this game. They're, you know, what the – you know what it looks like they need? They need that second playmaker, that second, you know, shot creator. And I'm just like, you know, it was a really hot shooting night for the Sixers. It was at home. Um, I – don't buy too much into it. I mean, let's see what happens that when they wasn't up the end. That wasn't the issue in the game yesterday. I mean, it just wasn't. It was, It was. you know, this is one of those situations where it does really fall on the star, I think, and it was Giannis um, that was the hole here. But I still feel some guilt might not be the right word, but I feel I have I worry for the Bucks and I worry for the Bucks mental game. Bledsoe gets criticized for this all the time. Um, I saw a, a, I saw Giannis trying to activate a kind of confidence in his shooting that just but it didn't happen. So I worry about the mental game there. And if it's not there, I don't think they're a playoff team. Uh, I would like them to be. I would like for that rivalry to mean a championship team. They're not a championship. They're they're very right. I don't. They're still going to have. They get out of the East. They're still going to beat a lot of people. They're going to be great this regular season. But Bledsoe does worry me. I mean, we talked about this a couple of times already. You when you see somebody lose confidence to that degree that he did last year against the Raptors, you just it's really tough to say how he's, you know, we saw that with Lowry and DeRozan and we saw Lowry eventually come out of it. So we know that it's possible, but it really took one of the most confident players in the game and Kawhi being alongside him for it to happen. And, and the exuberance of Fred Van Vliet. I don't think that hurt. (laughs) And, and I do think that Giannis has that, um, I think he has that level of confidence. I think he can have that level of confidence that um, Kawhi has and rightly deserves to have it. Um, And so maybe the situation will just be set for Bledsoe to, you know, to to, to turn the leaf or whatever it's going to be. It could happen. I mean, anything can flip that switch. Uh, It could happen in a game. It could happen over the spring, you know, any number of things. So, um, you know, we saw the switch Fred, uh, switch with Fred Vanvleet. You know, he had the baby, the switch flipped. All of a sudden, he's a great player. That is one of the player. crazier <laughs> NBA narratives ever. It really is. I mean, he was he was abysmal. I mean, I remember just <laughs> yeah. getting burned by him a couple games in a row in DFS, and then 
and, and just like not believing that he was going to be he, like he was going to be one of those players yeah. that really just kind of fell off in the playoffs, which happens. And uh, and then like, yeah, the baby's born and he, he's like the god of basketball <laughs> for the like final two series, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, it was amazing. Or, so. or, or maybe it was just in the finals. I'm trying to remember when it exactly kicked no. off. It was, I think he shot 70% in like the last two or three games of the series against the the Bucks. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that's where yeah. it came in, right? Right. So, um, Kyle, would you like to avoid the Lakers Clippers discussion a little longer, or should we head there? Yeah, uh, let's go. Let's just all right. Yeah. So, so I think I think I have something that is like sort of a bit of a transition. So we were talking yeah. about, or I brought up the the topic of the Bucks sort of viability championship viability and uh, less about like this one game as an example of their weaknesses. But I think uh, what we saw in this game was uh, a bit like what we saw last season in the playoffs uh, when the Raptors, which is a team which has a really good defense um, has a stopper in Marcus Ole who can match the size of Giannis and then has like a more on ball defender in Kawhi who can, they can throw at Giannis Um the the way that Giannis's Christmas Day game went with the way that LeBron's Christmas Day went, they shared some similarities in that these are two players who like to get downhill, get to the rim, um, get contact, go to the free throw line, score at the rim, and Giannis just didn't get calls, and so I think that is like an underrated thing that like basically there was no there was no leeway, right? It didn't seem like that the refs ever made like a slightly bad call in favor of contact that maybe wasn't really there on Giannis's drives against Joel Embiid. Um, and like and in a playoff make... series, yeah, in a playoff yeah. series that, that will get corrected from game to game. Yeah. I think there'll just be more fluctuation and variance. And like you said, the same way you said, Michael, that Giannis coming out and, um, not making that three early on in the game was kind of the game. I think in the same way, game to game, whether or not Giannis is getting calls on his attacks can kind of be the game because Giannis is shooting the three better. I think he was shooting like uh, in the forties over like his last 10 games or something ridiculous like that, but he has a slower release and like, he's never, even if he makes a couple, like you don't really have to play like, you don't have to push up on him the same way you have to push up on a guy like Steph Curry or Kawhi right. Leonard in the same way, because you're going to have time to close because he ha- yeah. still has to load up that shot. <laughs> yep. So, I mean, I mean, that's, that's something that I noticed. And I think for LeBron transitioning to the, the Lakers uh, Clippers matchup, I think LeBron, just to be honest, not to like give him a pass. I'm not even like a LeBron guy, but he just didn't look healthy. And I don't know if that's like a thing, whether it's, coming back from his groin injury or the thoracic like muscle thing that he had that he caused him to miss the game. But basically from the moment uh, the game started, I was like, it's early, but LeBron doesn't look in rhythm. And then like a yeah. quarter later, I was like, is this guy healthy right now? And, you know, LeBron haters will say, oh, of course, this is what LeBron does. He like he he, he points to an injury after a big time loss or something like that. But I think in this case, I think there's truth to it. It was clear. Well, that's actually that's worth yeah. that. You know, that's a much bigger discussion for another time, probably. But that the guy has been healthier than any superstar that we can remember, and I don't think that 
I just don't think it's a lie. I think that the guy actually does get injured sometimes and injuries for him result in him losing rather than him missing time. And that's, that's the reality of LeBron James's career. Like, I'm just saying I buy that. Yeah. I I completely believe it. And, and just the way he talked about it after the game, I have to believe it was uh, part of what was going on there. And, you know, just looking at the stat line too, it sort of supports it in a way he had four free throw attempts. I don't know what he averages, but he just didn't look aggressive out there. He wasn't getting, you know, those plays weren't happening, happening where he was driving, getting a foul, getting to the line. We just didn't see that. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Um, he wasn't attacking the the rim. He he took, he, I think he was two for ten from three. So he took two, ten. Two for twelve. Like, two for twelve. So he, I mean, he's not Steph Curry. There's not really a reason <laughs> right. that LeBron should be taking twelve threes in a game, other than he's aware that he's injured. He doesn't feel right. Whether it's an injury, whether it's rust, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, he was not right. And I think he knew that and he played that way. He was passive the entire game. He settled for threes. The word on it is that Mr. Plus 26 for the game, Pat Beverly, um, (laughs) need him in the junk, you know, in the groin. um, And uh, in that sort of aggravated a groin injury for him. Um, And he, he said that he felt like he did before missing time before because you know he he went out and he missed that nuggets game um and then they they said it was a thoracic injury and then he said he got need in the groin and then he felt like he did injured you know before that nuggets game and now it sounds like he might miss time and yeah i'm i'm a little concerned because you know he's on my fantasy team that i'm i'm thinking he'll probably miss more than a game or two it could be a couple weeks even but yeah yeah i think you could be looking at two to four weeks based on the descriptions i was seeing though i have to question does getting need in the groin cause a groin injury like the one i imagine we're actually talking about where it limits his you know, just ability to push off, stop side to side. All yeah, I didn't I didn't quite get that either. The way I mean, the way he described it was just he got need and then he felt like he did before he had the time off. Got it. And so called attention to it. It could, could have been any number of things. Yeah. He, you know, people like to get their digs in on Pat okay. Beverly and his yeah. aggressive defense. And, um, you know, and I and I'm I'm into that, you know. I mean, he, that was Pat a Beverly play reminds, at the end. We'll get to it. But that Pat Beverly reminds play. me of the worst things that the things that I hate the most about like college <laughs> basketball, where like guys can just all of a sudden just they just start like wrapping people. This is like what Duke does all the time. They just start like wrapping people up and like slapping all over the place, and and it just becomes sort of like permissible because it's aggressiveness. And uh, and I always kind of question who gets away with what kinds of aggressiveness. Um, and you know, people earn reputations, and uh, Pat Beverly has certainly earned it by at this point. Um, and uh, and he gets to do what he's gonna do. Um, I mean, if you watch the replay and slow it down on that last play. I'm giving him a ton of credit. Like it was a great play. He knew exactly what LeBron was going to do there. He was set up to block the shot before LeBron got the shot off. Like he knew exactly where it was going, where he was releasing everything. It was, it was, you know, it was LeBron's lack of aggressiveness there that set up Beverly. Like, like, so yeah. It's a tremendous defensive play. 
no doubt. I mean, I still, and and you know that I think this, I still think that it should have been Lakers ball and like half of Twitter did. I mean, basically. Did you watch it? it? Did you see the clip of the ball? I did. After? I did. And you yeah. still think, you still think the Lakers should get the ball, even though it's and really there's clearly. A, there's a reason. I have, I have off LeBron's hands. I have a yeah, I I have a rationale for this and it's what everybody there are two different ways to to think about it. The first is that for the first 46 minutes of the game, that's automatically going to be called Lakers ball. That's just the way that it goes. When it when a defender slaps the ball out of bounds, uh you know the the you you might just say that the contact that yeah. caused the ball to go out of bounds gets judged to be the last to touch the ball. And I think that that ration, you know, sort of some people's rationale is that what you say then is that like that logic should hold for the last two minutes. I actually don't believe that. Um, I think that what they need, you can't use getting it wrong in the first 46 as an excuse for getting it wrong in the last two. Well, no, because what I, what I think is, is that you actually need to, codify the reason why the refs call it that way for the first 46 minutes. And I think that that's relatively simple. What you say is exactly as I just did there. You, 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 you say if, um, if an offensive player has full possession of the ball and a defender comes and swipes at the ball and the ball goes out of bounds, the ball will be deemed um, the offense's ball unless and then there are a couple of, of situations where I would deem it to not be that. And that would be if the ball after the swiping, um, you know, after the force that has caused the ball to leave the player's hands, if the ball bounces off any part of that, the offensive player's body before it goes out of bounds, then it is the defensive ball. If the offensive player um, manages to sort of, you'd have to find good language for this, but basically the idea is if their hands are following along the ball and they, um, and they, 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 they have a movement that is contributing to pushing the ball out of bounds, then the ball is deemed off of the offensive player. If it's, you know, if, if they're the last ones to touch it, but basically you just, you know, you cover in a couple of sub, you know, rules, like how you call those situations and you make it intuitive, which is that an offensive player should not be penalized for a defender slapping the ball out of bounds because it was clearly the force of the defender slapping the ball that made the ball go out of bounds. Not anything that LeBron there choosing here in a, in a way, because LeBron, LeBron basically telegraphed everything he was going to do. And he got supremely outplayed by Pat Beverly there. Like I, I don't see a scenario in which it's fair for it to go back to the Lakers in any scenario, 46 minutes or for last two. I think I think what I would say is that, like, you're right that, like, Pat Beverly made a great play and, um, you know, he read he read the play perfectly. He read LeBron's actions. But I think it it is fair to to, like, point to the fact that, like, if you're playing a pickup basketball game or basically any gym in anywhere in the world, that's like <laughs> sure. not the NBA or including the NBA, the first 46 minutes of the game, that ball is going to go back to the Lakers. And it's not just that play, you know, it's like every time a guy blocks a shot or knocks the ball out of a player's hands, you know, it's sort of not the spirit of the rule. And that I think this is the problem the NBA keeps getting into with these rules changes and these um, added review capabilities is that they're a 
abandoning the spirit of the rule. They're abandoning the spirit of basketball and competition for correctness, for perfectness or the aim uh, toward perfectness. And like, I think that's what people are complaining about on like intelligent, well thought out people are complaining about on the internet because that's not, that's not really what the, the basketball competition should go like you shouldn't be rewarded in such a way like you the reward is lebron didn't make the shot there's only three seconds left and now they have to inbound the ball you know that's the reward not like you also get the ball back yeah i mean it's interesting for me to compare it to baseball because baseball will not call balls and strikes even though you know we can you know it's really easy review with yeah. with with optical technologies to show whether the the ball ever went through not just a plane but within the whole cube of you right. know cube or rectangle you know um and and they won't ever do it and it doesn't seem to bother anyone when they know that the umpire got it say wrong because it's somehow in the spirit of the game that that's part of the you know the variability that we deal with and 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 i just agree with that with with you know that play last night to me i think that pat beverly's reward was he stopped the play you know and that's what blocking a shot does um and that's what swiping the ball out of an offensive player's hand does at other parts of of a possession is it stops a play dead it makes them inbound the ball it gives the defense an advantage it gives you another opportunity to potentially get a turnover you know there are all kinds of advantages that he already had from creating that advantage um I don't think he that I mean, I don't think he needs to be rewarded with something against the spirit of the rules of the game. It's not a reward. It was the actual play. It was reality. And I get the whole spirit thing. I get the spirit thing. But like, it was reality (laughs) at fractions of a second that we can't see. It was only a video. Also, we all knew. We've all watched a million games where that play happens and you see the defender do that thing with his hands where it looks like he's throwing ones for strippers or something. And, you know, that's like they know what actually happened. Both of those players know what actually happened. I've played in lots of games growing up where I got the ball ripped from me. I knew it went off me, but I sure pretended it didn't, and we got the ball back. Like, I get all that, but <laughs> there's there's a reality there, and I don't think giving Pat Beverly part credit there— I just don't is, understand— I mean, so can, can I ask you— Incredible play. Can I phrase it a little bit differently? Yeah. Can I, can I phrase it differently? Because I think it might help explain why I— why, What part of— So, so in, in your— playing the game and in your understanding of of the rules of the game, what makes you want to turn the out of bounds into a competitive advantage, which is to say, what makes you want to use the, what makes you want to weaponly uses every tiny little edge he can find. And he had one there. Isn't that the same thing that that you, that you and a lot of other people don't like about Chris Paul when he does it though? You know, he, he, the other, I love that. that You know, the shirt, the shirt tucked in. The ugly competitiveness I will give anybody credit for. It's about winning those games and getting out there. Like I'm fine with all those guys. I mean, I think as as a, so I'm actually kind of arguing against my position here right now. I (laughs) I, I loved that, that not tucked in Jersey call. 
Yeah, yeah well, I, he, he reminds the refs every game. <laughs> I mean, I think, again, that's another example where the spirit of the rule is not being enforced. You know, yeah. we're, we're enforcing the letter of the law. And to me, I think you have to respect it because Chris Ball is trying to win a game and he's doing something that are within the rules to win the game. Yeah. Uh, but as a viewer, it's like that's not yeah. what I want to see, right? As a viewer, yeah. you want to see – uh, LeBron James get a chance to win the game uh, because this is the way the game has been played basically for eternity, including, right. <laughs> as I said before, the first 46 minutes of this game. Like there's going to be a call just like that, you know, multiple times in yeah. every game and it's not going to go that way. So, I mean, I think not only from like the spirit of the rules, but also from an entertainment aspect, it's much more interesting to then have LeBron have a chance to tie the game. I mean, not win the game. They're down three. Um, so just, you know, tie the game unless someone fouls them on a three-point shot. And, I mean, that's how I feel yeah. uh, about it, the uh, the Chris Paul thing because it's like that's not uh, that's not playing, right? He's not playing. He's just, like, telling the ref to call this thing so that his team can then have a better chance of, of winning. He's not doing anything on the court that is difficult, which is what people are paying to see, athletic feats, um, right. you know, all these sorts of things. So, I mean, I think that's right. what I would say. Yeah, I and 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 uh, just to be clear, um, you, you know, I was partly just arguing with you guys for fun here. Like, I think the the real point is what both of you are saying in different ways. The spirit of the game, the beautiful game, like, yeah, that's what we want to watch. That is all of the rules I will ultimately argue for. Um, and I guess if I was trying to save my own argument here, which I honestly don't truly care about, it's that. Patrick Beverly made a beautiful play. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I and I'm and I'm saying that the benefit of that beautiful play is not lost if the ball goes back to the Lakers. I got you. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I feel like I don't know if I'm if I have thought about this enough to really uh, say anything, but I feel like I need to interrogate why I'm not more a fan of Patrick Beverly. I'm just sort of like, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I feel like he plays hard. He plays the right way for the most part, except for it's when because he, he got away, man. He was he was part of the heat, and then he <laughs> got away. And I, you just you just never been able to get over your grief. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't even really care that much about. It. I don't think <laughs> that that much of a difference on this Heat team. Well, there are players, and we've talked about two of them in the in the last ten minutes. Patrick Beverly and. Um, wait, who is the other defensive player that we're, oh, Chris Paul, Chris Paul. I think in real life, they're probably jerks. I don't necessarily want to be around them, <laughs> but I will watch, I will watch them play as jerks and admire it. Yeah. To be honest, I think what I don't like as someone who never really like was, uh, a showman to the referee. I feel yeah. like when I played basketball, that is something that I feel like rubs me the wrong way. Where it's like, I don't know. I think this is partly why I struggle with Kawhi. Although I think I'm coming around on Kawhi's game just because he basically doesn't miss mid-range jump shots, so I can't really complain about that. But like Kawhi basically bulldozes through people on every play and like pushes off on every play but he also snaps his head back with like <laughs> <Yeah>. extreme <laughs> uh, extreme energy anytime he faces any contact and he yells and screams i'm just like can we pick one like are you right. gonna that be didn't happen <laughs> are you gonna be the physical dude who runs over everyone or are you gonna be the james hardness player who like snaps their head back every time they feel any contact and the reality is like if you want to be the best scorer or one of the best scorers in the game you probably have to do both i think that just sort of rubs me the wrong way as someone who's like 
played defense and enjoyed playing defense, you know, yeah. because yeah. I, I want I want the defender to be able then to also be physical right. um, and be rewarded for that physicality. If the offensive player can they themselves be physical and the league has made a point of emphasizing that off arm this year. So we're seeing that called a little bit more. So maybe we're moving toward a more equal playing field, but it's offense versus defense. Offense sells tickets. Um, defense doesn't. But I also think uh, to tie this into Patrick Beverly, I think he's good at tricking the refs on defense. Yeah. He like abuses you uh, when you have the ball. And then as soon as you bump him, he falls and the ref <laughs> yep. calls uh, an offensive foul on you. And to me, as a defender, I'm like, I mean, I guess this is good defense, but I mean, it just kind of it kind of rubs me the wrong way. And also, but I mean, there yeah. have been games that Beverly has fouled out of. Um, he's yeah. fouled out multiple times this year, so maybe he's getting his. Uh, maybe it's even it's evening out in terms of like his style of play. I mean, I got, Beverly, go ahead, Kyle. No, no, please. I, I, I just want to say about Beverly, he's an incredibly smart player in the sense that he uses those setups repeatedly. He uses what his opponent just did or what he just did and then uses it as a fake the next time or uses it as a feint to lead to the next move. Like he is so smart building on that complexity throughout the game. It's oh, yeah. How some of that happens. Oh, yeah. If, if he gets called for like an offensive or a defensive foul, yeah. he's going to fall immediately the next time to put <laughs> yeah. that on the referee to be like you just called this on one end you better call this yep. on the other end and they always do it and it's just like he'll get immediate fouls on star players just by doing that yeah uh, what yeah. i wanted to say was i want to continue this conversation about the rockets warriors game i was hoping we could transition into that but i wanted to say two more things about this game really quickly okay. um, and, and partially questions because i wasn't able to watch them um the box score to me suggested that you know lebron first of all didn't shoot that well we noted two of 12 from three right. point range it, also there were really only three players to shoot um kuzma davis and LeBron yes. were really the only three to really be shooting. And I wondered, it's a you know, as, as you were watching, did you find that there was, was an inability to find people? Um, I guess, uh, was it LeBron settling? Clippers defense was just so smothering that nobody really had any available shots unless they were LeBron, AD or, or Kuz. Um, or what was going on there? Well, I think it was partly that, uh, partly also um, Rondo as a secondary playmaker was somewhat ineffective in this game in his 20 minutes. And so um, what you were describing of LeBron, I think, was part of it. Also, the Lakers in general were poor from three points. So um, I, I just pulled the stats up. But LeBron was two for 12. Davis was one for six. Danny Green was two for seven. Avery Bradley missed both of his. Um, and Rondo was one for five. They were 27% from three in this game. So that's another way to look at this particular outcome is just poor three-point shooting. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it was like a strategy going into the game to have Davis shoot. Um, that it kind of looked games. like it. Yeah. But yeah, it seemed like maybe they were trying to use that in order to open up driving lanes for yep. LeBron and get and create more space. But I don't think you should have. 
at least not until he proves that he's going to make that three-point shot more consistently, which he isn't. I don't I think he's shooting in the low 30s this year yeah. on the season on threes, Anthony Davis. So I don't really want him shooting one for six from three. Um, LeBron took 24 shots and Davis took 17. I would like that to be more even, especially when LeBron sure. was clearly laboring like he was in this game. So I think it was a combination of all those things. I think LeBron settled for too many threes. I think Anthony Davis settled for too many threes. Although in the first half it was working, I think, to some extent, um, because Kuzma was hot in the first half and right. because that added space was like keeping the the Clippers defense on their toes. But I think those two things and then also like the reality is that Danny Green, there's people on Twitter like to joke that there's a two dribble rule for Danny Green. If he takes more than two <laughs> dribbles, something bad happens. And yep. that that's the problem with Danny Green. He's hot and cold, sure, but I think the greater problem is that so J.R. Smith is not a perfect player, but J.R. Smith could take more than two dribbles and he could take kind of like tough fadeaway shots. He could take tough threes. Um, and that's like a valuable skill. Like Danny that Green was the, is basically uh, a standstill shooter. Avery Bradley is basically Rajon Rondo with better defense at this point. Not, <laughs> yep. not a good three-point shooter. And yeah. then Contavious Caldwell-Pope is also streaky, but he played well in this game, but he also yeah. went out of the game because he he had a chase down block on Landry Shamit and he like twisted his ankle or something. So he missed part of the game. And then I also think, I think, uh, Frank Vogel didn't do a good job. He played Rajon yeah. Rondo way too much for my liking. Played 20 minutes. Alex Caruso played 10. Contavious Caldwell Pope played 28. Um, and I think, I think you just you if you are counting on Rondo, bad things are going to happen, especially against the Clippers. Like, there's no reason for Rondo to be on the floor with LeBron against a team like the Clippers because the added playmaking that you're getting, especially when LeBron is hobbled, is not going to work because the Clippers are smart. They're going to shade off of uh, off of Rondo. Yeah. Rondo took five threes in this game. He was one for five. He made his first one similar to Giannis. He came out, didn't hesitate, took the first one, made it, missed all the rest of them. And it was just like – Rondo can't make the shot, and he's also not good on defense. Just play Alex Caruso. Give Alex Caruso a chance to have an impact. Like, well, when I, think, I yeah. when I look at these numbers, one of the things that so you know the other thought that I had about this game is just big picture. It's you know everyone's already talking. Are the Lakers going to try to get Andre Iguodala now? Is that the piece that they need? And when I look at this, I don't necessarily <laughs> think that that I don't love that. Know, well. Part of it's that 111 as a score for the Clippers is, is that's a score you can live with. The Lakers can win a game, you know, they they could win a series um, with the Clippers scoring a few games around 110. Um, and so it doesn't seem to me that that they need that extra defender on, you know, Paul George and Kawhi. I think they and do. I, I mean, I think that they do, but I think that when I'm looking at their shot you know, just the shot numbers here, it just becomes really stark that they only have one wing player who can get to the rim. And that's LeBron. I mean, KCP, you know, going back to his days on the Pistons and I watched him a lot more just has never been, he's never had great dribble moves. And that's, also a flaw of Avery Bradley's game. Um, Rondo used to be able to get to the rim at will. Um, he can't really anymore. Um, and and I'm just wondering if like 
would they be as well served just getting somebody who could you know break down the who's who's available who could do that I think they would, and, and, and this is supported by, uh, in part by an athletic article, I can't remember who the writer was, but essentially called out that the Lakers are one of the, I think they're the second most top-heavy scoring team in the league behind Houston, maybe, and it's LeBron and Anthony Davis, obviously, and then that third person, it's whoever shows up, it was Kuzma last night. Yeah, um, Kuzma's the third leading scorer on the team, but I think he's only averaging like 11 points a game. Which is, yeah, not enough for a third score um, on a championship team. So, Like they, they could have used Clarkson, you know? Yeah. Talk about yeah, that Jazz trade. Um, mm-hmm. And I, we'll come back to that. The other thing um, this brought up for uh, – and Kyle, you mentioned Vogel briefly, and it reminded me um, that last play of the game, the part we didn't talk about – is LeBron has the ball uh, on the offensive end with about 18 seconds left, I want to say. He sort of does a basically dead dribble for 14 seconds before he puts up. I think there was a pass to KCP that came right back, and that was the only thing that happened in 15, 16 seconds. LeBron didn't do much. Vogel didn't stop and call a play. If you're listening to Van Gundy's call, he doesn't know why LeBron isn't driving. It was his groin, presumably. But there were some questions there, too. We didn't even get to that. Yeah, I mean, I think it was just poor execution down the stretch uh, in that respect. Like you said, they didn't run a play. Um, You know, I think that's something that maybe you can, like, Obviously, you can practice, right? I think there is like a missed free throw or an inbound. It wasn't after yeah, a timeout. Yeah. So, but you should have a play that you can run on the fly in that situation. Yep. And if you don't, you should be able to, you should call a timeout. I think they still had a timeout left at they that had time. Two. They had um, two. So, yeah, <laughs> you, sh- you should call a timeout and run a play. And if you're LeBron, you're down three with like, what, 20 seconds left, 18 seconds left. Yeah. There's no reason for you to hold the ball to take a three. Like, <laughs> right. uh, I get you don't want to leave them time to go and win the game, but like, you're down three anyway. So like if you go yeah. quickly for a two, if yep. you go quickly, just go get a quick two, try and play defense, uh, yep. foul, play the foul game. Uh, you know, it was just bad execution all around. What I'll say is like, as far as big picture, LeBron was passive. So although I think it's of note that the Clippers seem like the tougher team, they seem like the more sort of team ready for these big moments. Uh, LeBron was passive. I think he's injured and that, that is both good and bad because if he gets healthy, I think this game could have played out a lot differently considering the fact that Kyle Kuzma got hot, which you would presume could happen in a seven game series, at least one or two games. And that LeBron and AD didn't dominate. They didn't play their best. And yet they were up 15 at one point in the game. So if LeBron gets healthy, I think if I was a Lakers fan or in the Lakers organization, I'll be pretty like encouraged by that fact. Um, also, the Lakers size really, really did a number on Montrez Harrell and uh, Lou Williams. They were very ineffective for the game. I think they were like one of 16 or something like that together. Interesting. Um, yeah. uh, Montrez Harrell looked tiny compared to Dwight Howard. He couldn't keep him off the offensive glass. The only thing that saved them was the fact that Howard got in foul trouble. Montrez Harrell had resulted to just pushing Dwight Howard while he was in midair to stop him. So I think that was serious. Paul George got blocked a couple times. Anthony Davis had how many blocks in this game? 
he had two blocks. JaVale McGee had five blocks in this game. Like they, they were having trouble scoring inside. And I think the Lakers size could have an impact on Harold specifically. And he's someone who the Clippers rely on to get points. So I think that's maybe why you saw like a fairly limited point total for the Clippers. Interesting. Yeah. It's, Williams was well, yeah, Luke, six yeah. with four turnovers, which I completely missed though. He did have seven assists. I mean, yeah. the one thing, the, the, the other thing I thought for the Lakers that, you know, could bode well for them is that the Clippers have now won the first two matchups and they could just think that they've got what they need to beat them. And then they don't make that move of the trade deadline. Maybe the Lakers do. And it's just enough for the Lakers to get over the top this year. I really do think that the Lakers have a one year window. I think that they, I think LeBron's going to be a year older next year. I think that they, they just don't have any flexibility to bring in any more talent. Um, I think they're really going for this one year. Um, and when I look at this game as a second in a row for the Clippers, I wonder if that maybe could yeah. be a blessing in disguise. Yeah, yeah. interesting point. <laughs> yeah, well, before we move on, sorry. I just want to yeah. say, sorry. Uh, Lou Williams was one for six, not Montrezl Harrell and Lou Williams combined. And then also... Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think the, the Clippers will be fooled into not making a move if they can improve their team. Like they already leveraged their future for Kawhi. So it's championship or bust. And I think they're also Kawhi and PG are going to be free agents pretty soon before, before they know it. So they, they definitely can't like have any bad missteps, you know, all of a sudden Kawhi will be back in Toronto with Giannis or something like that. So, um, I think they're, they got to be on their toes for that. And then, I mean, I think this game was just sort of like another feather in the cap for Kawhi in like potential best player in the world candidacy he was dominant he was efficient he had 35 points uh he had 12 rebounds he had five assists uh he was plus 13 for the game uh the only other person who was like um significantly plus was Patrick Beverly who was plus 26 uh Paul George was a minus eight and I think that was you know single game plus minus is not something that we should maybe put that much stock in, but I watched the game. Paul George floated through the first half. Um, he was five of 18 for the field. Um, he just, he wasn't a force in the first half. And I think this is something I asked on Twitter and got no response to, but like, has Paul George actually been that good? Like Paul George is basically um, six, eight clay Thompson. Now he, <laughs> he's not, he's not super great driving to the basket. Uh, when he did uh, score his points in the second half, he was able to get to the basket and draw fouls by like, you know, coming to a jump stop, head faking, putting his body into the guy and forcing the refs to call a foul. But he doesn't have the same ability to get to the basket, draw fouls, finish in the lane that Kawhi does. He doesn't have the same ball handling ability that Kawhi does. So I wonder, like, can you take Kawhi? I mean, can you take PG out of a series by putting the right person on him? Because what he wants to do these days is shoot threes. He wants to come off screens and shoot threes. He wants to get a big switched on him and then lull them to sleep and then shoot a three. And so I wonder, you know, I wonder in a series, yeah, and can you can you take him out? Uh, can yeah. will he fluctuate? That. Will he fluctuate the way like we've seen Clay Thompson fluctuate in series before? Well, he he'll have 12 one game and then 30 another. And what does that do for their team? Um, so I mean, I think that that's really interesting. And there was one more point I wanted to say that I that I kind of forgot, but uh, yeah, we can I guess we can move on. 
Yeah, uh, we can also go a little more rapid fire through the last of these. I know that we've spent a lot of time on these first two. Well, um, I, I think if it's okay with you guys, you, you, um, one of the thing we mentioned the Celtics and Raptors, the uniforms and the shoes, and we also mentioned Will Barton and his two shoes, two different colored shoes. I'm happy to just talk about the Rockets Warriors. I think we're already ne- like as hard as we try to keep this under an hour. The enthusiasm of basketball doesn't allow it. Yeah. He's never going to. He's never <laughs> yeah. going to. So um, I'm good with hitting Celtics Raptors and then maybe a little on the trade market if that works. Yeah. So yeah. But, but I mean we, we can say something. We've got to talk Celtics. about the Warriors beating James Harden again. Yeah. It's such an embarrassment. I can't yeah. believe it happened. I, well, I meant I meant Rockets Warriors. I think I said Celtics Raptors. But yes, this is the interesting discussion, and it is Harden. And about 15 minutes ago, I was ready to make the transition because Jalen mentioned Harden, but then we went deeper into the LA teams. Um, so this is interesting. The Harden double teams and traps. Um, they're looking a little different. They look a little looser to me. Um, which I think is helping limit the free throw attempts he's getting. He got one free throw in that game, and that was the difference, according to Steve Kerr. Uh, yeah, um, so some of my takeaways from this game were, as far as fantasy, uh, before this game, Russell Westbrook, Russell Westbrook had been on a bit of a heater. He had been hot. He had been scoring you know, 20-plus points. I think he had 40 against the Clippers in a recent game. And he's also been shooting his free throws better. So as far as fantasy considerations, uh, I have, I think, won a couple games recently because Westbrook has been shooting his free throws much better. Um, He was 8-for-8 in this game. So if Westbrook is going to be like a true – true like 80% free throw shooter again uh he's still going to be fantasy relevant even with his like massive turnover numbers and his bad field goal percentage you know you can just punt those categories um so I think that's one thing to to think about but as far as like the real NBA I mean 11 for 32 from the field for Westbrook (laughs) this was and Harden only took 18 shots this yeah. was classic. This was classic Rockets. I mean, we talked about this at the beginning of the season when we did yep. our our, uh, <laughs> our previews for each division, and I said, "Does James Harden actually want to win? Does he actually want to win a championship? If you pass the ball out of a double team at half court and stand still for the next twenty seconds of the shot clock, you can't look me in the face and tell me you want to win." That's, That's just so not great how you life said works. That. I, <laughs> yeah. I was I was thinking all day today that my take on Westbrook and Harden right now is that they're the, the worst part about it is that their flaws match because they <laughs> both do that they like they both just stand around after they after they move the ball and uh, it's a big problem it's really stifling the other thing I was noticing in these sort of um, you know these traps Harden knows they're coming. Westbrook knows they're coming for Harden. Um, They looked a little loose. You know, they aren't the tight traps that I grew up being instructed to play as a child. Um, It's because they don't want a turnover. They want want Harden to throw the ball to Westbrook and watch something terrible happen. 
It's that, and also keeping that distance allows him to not get those cheapo free throw calls that he's so great at getting. But the yeah. other thing I wanted to mention out of that, there were sort of these loose traps, and he's just sort of flipping the ball. It's a very safe pass because there's nobody else around the guy he's passing the ball to. But a bunch of them were just sort of flips over the trap with some arc. It takes a while for the ball to get there. The other teams are already recovering to the guy who's getting the ball, and Houston's getting no advantage out of it. It's like it just looked to support. Um, I think what Kyle was just saying about Harden in a way, he seemed like a petulant child at times. So like, if this is what they're going to do, I'm just going to do this and stop playing. Well, they're they're shot. I mean, we were just talking about them with the Lakers conversation, but they. They had three guys shoot, you know, Westbrook shoots 32 shots, Harden shoots 18, and then House actually had 15. And then everyone else are just these like three, six, you know, nine, eight, nine. Um, And, you know, they just so much of the offense is taken up by two players who, I mean, you understand why other people aren't shooting because the defense doesn't have to work when two guys are standing around. Right. You know, granted, I didn't see you, this game. So, well, I mean, you as, did. As you guys know this. I, I watched pieces and there were adjustments later. You saw some aggression from Harden just trying to get the ball up quickly to avoid those. You saw some abre- aggression from Westbrook just getting the ball up the floor more quickly, too. But that was basically the adjustment. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm mainly saying this on like prior series of of Harden against the Warriors and just being just dismayed at yeah, (laughs) like like feeling like this is stubborn as hell. This is your chance to win. Curry's injured or KD's injured or any number of these things, and then they're just sort of lack of aggression unless he had the ball and then it's even hard to like talk about the way that he that that you know Harden plays offense as a form of aggression it's incredibly (laughs) it's incredibly effective obviously right yeah but he's so um it's so minute and sort of tactical in certain ways and like but, but not yeah. No, no. I mean, I think that's a great point. And like, I feel like there's so many um, topics to discuss with this Rockets team and like they're all spinning in my head at once. But in terms of what you're saying about his his offense is somehow not a form of aggression. I think that ties into the reason why teams are trapping him the way they are, because basically James Harden made a pick and roll. And he made even more than that isolations, the most uh, efficient, potent play in basketball. And the reason why the Rockets played at the slowest pace last year, I think one of the slowest paces in the league, is because Harden wanted to know where all the chess pieces were on the floor. He wanted to walk the ball up. He wanted to center the, the board and put everyone in their specific positions. And that meant that when he drove, he knew exactly where P.J. Tucker was going to be. He knew exactly where Clint Capella was going to be. P.J. Tucker's in the corner. Capella's in the dunker spot. There's another shooter in the corner. There's one There's one other person you know, on the wing or something like that. So he knew where everything was. He could play his game. If you sent help, he knew where the help was going to come from. He knew where the pass was going to be. If you didn't send help, he was going to kill the guy guarding him. He was going to get to the free throw line. He was going to make his step back threes. When you're trapping, um, that kind of throws all of that in flux, right? So they can control that to some degree. Earlier on in this game, the Rockets had um, 
they had Westbrook on the wing, more in the slot, you know, not in the corner. So then that kind of gave him a chance to attack with more of the center of the court available from from the four on three position. But then they moved him to the corner sometimes because like, okay, if he's in the corner and you completely ignore him, he has a straight line drive, a baseline drive to the rim, which is like something you obviously don't want to give up. Um so they they can make these tactical adjustments, but at the same time, his teammates are human beings, right? They're just standing <laughs> on the perimeter while their teammate is getting trapped, and while Russell Westbrook missed Bricks three after three <laughs> and like turns the ball over, and Bricks contested layup in the four on three situation. So now they feel compelled to like move around and like try and relocate to a better position or cut to the basket to do something, to change something. And all of a sudden the chessboard is messed up and Harden doesn't know where things are and that affects him. And maybe that leads to some of his passivity. I don't know, but I, I just, I just don't think, I don't think that you can be a superstar the way James Harden is. You can't be as skilled as he is. And and then just like, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't want, Anyone I mean, that like... describes so much of what I saw in the last few seasons in the playoffs between the Rockets and Warriors was that they just did not seem to – I was going to say they didn't adapt well, but they didn't seem to be able to adapt, period, to the chaos of the playoffs uh, or particularly the chaos of the Warriors, you know – Switching the trapping, you know, variously just like disrupting the Rockets offense. They just didn't have enough. Yeah, they didn't have enough adaptability. I don't know the flexibility. They didn't have um, they just didn't seem to have the practice of, you know, guys running off screens, um, you know, driving and kicking and, you know, swinging the ball around and like variously just like getting everybody involved in a way that you could be um, a dynamic organism rather than some kind of structured chess machine. Or the adaptability to take a mid-range shot on occasion. (laughs) Well, we're talking about a game against a team that is not good and is especially not good defensively. Like, you know, these are all new pieces trying to play together. This isn't the Warriors' defense of, of seasons past. This is a mess, and they couldn't get it done. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this game was an example of now we should note that Eric Gordon has been injured and was out. And like if Mike D'Antoni is smart, I think he'll like sit Russell Westbrook for (laughs) Eric Gordon in crunch time sometimes, uh, because if you I can't wait for that to happen. I cannot wait. If you put Eric Gordon out there, there's one more reliable shooter, right, for the most part. You know, Um, you know, you're right. That really does explain it, you know. Eric I, don't, Gordon. I don't think that's Eric Gordon. No, no, I'm, I'm joking, but it's just such a hilarious thing to say right <laughs> but now. But it's that po- Eric, it could Eric be an explanation. So that's the it reason why be. the Rockets lost this game against the the Warriors, who have Clay Thompson and Steph Curry out, and it's just like they lost because Jalen. I'm, I'm definitely not saying this about you saying this. It's just an amazing thing to think about right now. Oh, the Rockets will be fine when Eric Gordon comes back. They only lost to the Warriors yet again yeah. when. Steph and Clay and everyone is out and they're playing with guys and like multiple guys on two way contracts and like Steve Kerr just has their number because in and, and, and also I feel so bad for Mike D'Antoni here because like you're talking about them playing the slowest pace offense. He wrote a book about playing the <laughs> seven seconds or less. 
Oh you know? my goodness, yeah. No, I mean, I think <laughs> I think word around the NBA ether is that everything in that organization runs, uh, at, you know, at the behest of James Harden. Um, whatever whatever he wants is what happens. So slow pace, isolation, and I mean, I think we should give them credit. They're smart to isolate. Uh, Harden yeah, made isolation yeah. the most efficient shot. The step back three, his isolation is the most efficient play in basketball. So you would be dumb not to use the most efficient play in basketball if you have access to, use to it. it. But to, like, to, but, but not to <laughs> only use it. Yeah, no, that is that is fully true. And I think I think what this conversation has made me think of again, I'm thinking of so many things. But it, I think one of the reasons why basketball is such an amazing sport and why I have so much fun watching and talking about it is because you can't. You can't separate these players' weaknesses from their strengths in a lot of ways. Like the LeBron is a six-eight tank who dominated by getting to the rim at will for much of his career. You know what comes with that? Poor shooting ability. So it's like <laughs> he has a weakness that is like tied to his to his skill. James Harden is someone who made isolation amazing. Uh, but you know what comes with that? Like a, he's not great on defense a, like he doesn't move well off the ball. Like now some of this is, is a serious question, right? Why can't James Harden move off the ball? Like, is this a weakness or is this just an unwillingness to do the things, uh, that will lead to victory? Right. I don't, Really conservation think. of energy is that here yeah like, certainly that's what's going through his head in my mind <laughs> but like this is the thing like i think the traps make it that less of an argument right because yeah. right now if he's getting trapped at half court and throwing the ball over the double team and just chilling out for even if you just want to chill out for the first half sure but after you give up the ball in the trap in the second half, maybe try and go get it back. Maybe just do something that the defense isn't expecting. Like Or on Christmas Day against the Touch team the that beat you do in the playoffs the last two years that's completely hobbled right now and that you should beat just to get you know yeah. just to get that off your back. Like in this off? game, play I, the play the way that you need to play just to beat them. Yeah, this is the thing. Like, if you're in the backyard <laughs> playing against your older sibling, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a three-point shooter. It doesn't matter what, what your skill set is. You're going to do whatever it takes to win <laughs> because you want to beat your sibling. And, like, this is not a sibling rivalry. This is, like, uh, something worse than that, you know? And, I cannot and, wait until Harden makes that lazy sort of over-the-top over the pass out of the trap and cuts hard to the basket. When's it going to happen? Yeah, when, if, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and and then this is another thing, like Westbrook, this is again, uh, Westbrook's weakness, greatest strength is his weakness. The Rockets are potent. The Rockets are no longer playing at the slowest pace in the league because they have Russell Westbrook. And it makes perfect sense for Westbrook to push the pace in transition because that's when he's probably going to be at his most efficient, right? Not always. He's still going to brick a bunch of layups sometimes, but, you know, if he breaks a bunch of layups and then Clint Capella is right there because the defense is scrambled, hey, at least you get a putback dunk. Or if he goes in and you try to you overhelp on his drive, now he can kick it out to PJ Tucker. So there's a benefit to having Westbrook. If only in transition, I would say that's the biggest benefit of having Westbrook. But you know what also would be a benefit if James Harden wasn't still at half court when the, when <laughs> Westbrook was laying the ball up, and so that he could he could actually get more opportunities by being in the fray in transition instead of conserving energy for what task i don't know because he's clearly not using it on the defensive end like i don't know man like 
I respect James Harden. He's a great talent. He's the greatest innovator we've seen in maybe like the past 20 years. But like we all were athletes at one time. We all played. If you say you want to win, sometimes that requires doing things that you don't <laughs> want to do. Sometimes that requires playing defense. Sometimes that requires not taking the wide open three that defense is trying to give you, Russell Westbrook. You know, so I don't know. It's again, their weaknesses are tied to their strengths. There's no flexibility. It's like a mental thing. They can't overcome the the Warriors. And I mean, the funny thing is, they just added another person who can't beat the Warriors. To <laughs> like if if we if the if the new NBA league rules were in place this year, and the Warriors somehow wound up with the A seed, and the Rockets magically were the one seed, we might have another eight one upset just because every time Westbrook sees the Warriors and Steph Curry, he just sees Reds and attacks the baskets, and just he's just like chucking the ball off the the backboard on his drives because he's not compensating for the fact that there's going to be help and he still needs to finish the play oh man anyway i i I messaged you guys before the game i couldn't believe the line that the vegas had the warriors what it was like oh they were a one it was was one and a half points yeah warriors favored by one and a half points and i was like what is this about it doesn't make any sense they got like kai bowman and you know kai bowman's been great but you know but you know they're they're playing like eric pascal and kai bowman and you know um glenn robinson third you know and that betting line was a point you got a point and a half if you took the rockets against this depleted warrior squad the real line um basically had them uh the warriors as 10 point underdogs here so you we're talking about 11 and a half point swing conceivably for the rockets it was a 12 point game um I would have made that bet every time if I had access to uh, sports betting, uh, and I would have lost every single time. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Who knew, who knew what and how did they know? That's all I want to know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess it's... They, they probably just knew that it was James Harden and Russell. <laughs> it's what you two guys just said. It's what you guys... And so. can, can you think about this from from Draymond Green's standpoint? Like, did we really like this is this was Draymond Green's season. If he does nothing else this season, he beat James Harden. He can lord that over them on Christmas Day without Steph Curry, without KD, without Klay Thompson. And and they did it by exploiting Russell Westbrook. They did it by saying, Westbrook, we don't think you're smart enough, a good enough shooter, or just willing to change your behavior enough uh, to guard you. We're going to put you in four and three situations, and you're not going to succeed. And it's worked. And it, it didn't just start working. They've been doing this for years against yeah. Westbrook. Yeah. So um... – All right, I'm going to call that a wrap on the Rockets Warriors, and I'm going to say we've already said more than enough about Celtics, Raptors, Denver, New Orleans. Um, I just want to talk a little about the trade market. Yeah, exactly. Quick thing about Denver and New Orleans. Denver just saw Drew Holiday tear them up. Do they make (laughs) a trade for him? They're making a trade for somebody. I love that trade for them. How much do they have to give up? Gary Harris for sure, and then and, Michael Porter Jr. I think that's what that's what the you know the word on the street right now is the Pelicans want MPJ, maybe even a first rounder and 
Gary Harris. And um, I guess they don't need Beasley or Morris, which you know are two other yeah. trade chips that are talked about a fair amount here. Yeah, I don't know how much it's going to take, but you would think they would have to give up Gary Harris for sure. Like they probably want one reliable, like veteran piece, the Pelicans, and then you know one upside piece. Yeah, I think I think Denver also has their picks, so maybe they could throw a pick in there also. But the Pelicans have so many picks. Uh, maybe they don't yeah. want more picks uh, right now, but I think Denver is probably the team best suited to make a trade, but they can't give up too many people. You know, I, I would imagine I saw that they might be hesitant to give up Will Barton because he's been so good, but he's been uh, amazing. He's that classic glue guy. I don't think they let go of him this season, but it, I maybe, saw maybe it, Drew's it, com- comparable. Sorry, Kyle, go ahead. Yeah, no, yeah, no. I, hear you. I saw an interesting three team trade between it would be the Warriors, Timberwolves and pelicans i think it was that was like basically swapping yeah it's it's like sending russell to the timberwolves which we know he was uh, you know he was poised to sign there during the off season um and then covington coming out covington going to the warriors and then i think like picks and something you know going to the Pels. I can't exactly remember what it would be, but you know, um, I was interested in that. I, we haven't seen three team trades in a while. When's the last three team trade that we've had? That one for that for Brooks that didn't happen last season. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no, I can't think of one. That's funny. Um, the one trade we've actually had is the Cavs trading Jordan Clarkson to the Jazz for excellent picks. Um, as you two know, I love this trade for my fantasy team because Kevin Porter Jr. gets now um, a bunch of more minutes, assuming they don't give too many to Exum. Um, uh, I like this for both teams. Yeah, I like it for both teams. I'm also waiting for the Cavs to make another move, Love or Thompson perhaps, but they could be difficult trades. Yeah. yeah, I think I think this is something we mentioned earlier on in our division previews where we were talking about how tradable is Kevin Love's contract. Yeah. And I think the scuttlebutt around the league is that it's a lot less tradable than the Cavs thought it might be or hoped right. it might be when they first signed it. And I think that was my argument early on was just. Yeah, it was. And why? word is they want a, P, a first draft or a first round pick. And that's not happening. Yeah, I think there's a huge discrepancy between the way the Cavs see that contract and see Kevin Love as a player and the rest of the league sees him. I think I've heard that some teams might want an asset for taking on Kevin Love's contract. <laughs> right, right. Which is like, I mean, I don't. I think that's fair. Kevin Love is yeah, a stretch a big five. contract. He's a center who has to play center because he can't run around the perimeter with four men. But he doesn't protect the rim, so he's not giving you what you need from a defensive center. He's giving you what you need from offense in terms of the stretch, but, you know, he's he's an in-betweener. Like, he's a new yeah. tweener in a way. Um, and he's and fragile. He, yeah, he has, like, a checkered injury, injury history. So, I mean, they're in a tough spot, I think. Yeah. Um, Kyle, I have to mention the Pistons here. Are we finally going to be saved by a sell-off? I hope. I, I don't think. <laughs> I don't think. I don't think. Honestly. I don't think Tom Gores is willing to let it happen. I mean, they still. It's all about that arena and just. I think they're. They want to see playoffs. Um, they might just be bad enough by the trade deadline that the writing's on the wall, and hopefully they can get something for Drummond before 
he leaves because I right. don't think he's coming back. Um, and I think taking Blake Griffin's contract in the show. I think if, right I, now, I think if they sold this year, it's possible uh, they should have sold at the end of last season. Man, they could have had a buyer then. Yep. Yeah, it's ugly. Other teams looking at we already talked about Denver, uh, New Orleans, um, OKC, the Heat, the Raptors, the Knicks. Um, Rockets for another piece, Lakers for another piece. Anything excite you guys there? Um, I, I was just going to say on the Blake front that he seems like he may never be fully healthy again. You know, yeah, played, it's bad. He played last season on the injured leg in the playoffs, and the the talk was that there was no way he could make the injury worse, and that seems not to be the case anymore since – you know, he struggled to start the season. He missed a early a lot of games early on and now he's back, but he keeps he's in and out of the lineup every other game. So I don't know. It, it feels like his career is coming to an abrupt end on a very big contract. Yeah, this seems like one of those scenarios where where we see this great player who's been injury prone and it's that injury that just tips it over and that's it. They never quite come back. Those the scar tissue, the fascia, all that crap can go way too deep for people to get over these things in a, a quick amount of time. So, yeah, I'm, I'm worried for him. Yeah, and I think as far as other trades go, I mean, I don't have any fantastic scenarios, but the the Knicks, the Knicks, as always, have a lot yeah. of tra- have a lot of tradable pieces. <laughs> uh, I wrote about this for Rasball. Marcus Morris is having a career year. He was shooting 50% from three for most of the season. I think he's now at 47% or something like that. Um, and they he doesn't want to trade him for a piece, though, yeah. right? He doesn't want to be traded because he's smart and he understands that, like, if he continues to shoot that well from three with the opportunities he's getting and won't be getting anywhere else. Right. Big uh, contract. Yeah. Big contract in the summer. But, I mean, you would think that they have to trade him. I think that's in place already, honestly, no matter how he plays out this year. I mean, he's been so strong in that role and that stretch three-point shooting um yeah but they they have to get a pick back they're they're just such a mess all those young guys there's so little actually being developed there they're amazing the knicks have been amazing for a while (laughs) (laughs) uh any other trades the suns trading off any of their young depth okc trading off any of the old big contracts the The suns won't do it but they should contracts the Suns won't do it, but they should trade Aiton. <laughs> oh, you're on the trade wow. Aiton. Wow. You and, yeah. you and David Thorpe are on the trade Aiton bandwagon. Yeah, I I just believe it. What what like for what? What do you think they could get for him? Slash, why would you think they would trade him? Well, they're not going to trade him, but <laughs> why do you think it's a good idea? I mean, when's the last time that? The best player on the team, the highest paid player on the team, a center, has won a championship or even had, you know, big playoff splash. It's there. He's not. He's he's not enough. Shaq. We're talking about Shaq. (laughs) Yeah, I think we are. That's Uh, a long time ago. Who else else has it been? Yeah. Hakeem. Duncan, I guess. Hakeem was earlier. Yeah. Wasn't, Duncan, 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 Duncan wasn't Duncan like had, dominant, though, by then. He was older. 
Yeah, well, Duncan also was shooting 20-footers, and, you know, he's a... And I guess Aiton really likes to do that, too, but... Um, he's not good at it. <laughs> yeah, he's he's not Tim Duncan. And, you know, I I suppose, like, I could be wrong, and, you know, maybe he, he builds out his game there, but Duncan passed better. Um, you know, all these guys who were talking about passed better earlier in their careers. Um, I just think he has a ton of value right now, and... I think that they might find they're not going to do it. I mean, but I just think they're going to find that they're going to be having to pay him. Um, and that'll be it. You know, they'll, they'll pay him and that'll limit their flexibility. And he's just not going to be a player who can get them over the top. Yeah. The, the revisionist history or the alternate history, I should say for the Suns is, is quite sad considering they could have drafted Luka Doncic um, and paired him with uh, with Devin Booker, um, and then they could have just figured out the center position, which is massively devalued and, as you're saying, mm-hmm. hasn't led to championships in recent years. Um, but I think for the Suns, as far as trades, they're probably more likely to add um, veteran talent in order to snag that eighth spot, which is readily available in the west all of a sudden Uh, yeah so i mean that's what i would say people have floated them as a kevin love destination just because they i think they have a mostly clean cap sheet for the most part you know they don't have too many massive contracts on their books um rubio's making a lot of money but um yeah maybe they they could trade for kevin love and part of that grew out of baines playing so well at the five and stretching it um yeah i think get the defense with love but uh yeah sort of an interesting option for them i think baines is just better for winning uh there because he stretches the floor he plays solid positional defense he's a good passer something is not as you said kyle so the only problem with baines is that i think he played like he was playing like 24 to 27 minutes or 24 minutes a game and he got injured because right. just, his body can't handle that many minutes so you're definitely going to need another sort of starting caliber center yeah um, definitely to, to split it's minutes. the same yeah it's the same thing i've argued about the pistons i think it's the, the trouble with paying you know drummond is amazing and you know drummond is a generational you know rebounding talent um and just you know defensive presence but when you have to pay him that much you really constrain what you can do otherwise in building a team. And I just think that Aiton's going to be the same way. Um, he, he's he's going to be a great player, um, and he already is a, a great player, but he, he's a number one overall pick. You know, it, Drummond was a number nine pick, and he still gets his, you know, his max on his, uh, you know, first available contract. And Aiton, as a number one overall pick, is definitely going to. Mm-hmm. Um it's just it's it's a tough position to be in. I I didn't realize that David Thorpe had said that, but you know he's a smart dude. I'm sure he has a better way of of putting it than I did. But the yeah, he's been it, saying it for a while. <laughs> he was very early on it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think um, since we've run nearly uh, twice as long as we expected to, uh, I think we should call it. That's Shot Tower for week 10. We'll be back next week with week 11. We will talk about how fire the heat are. We'll talk more about the trade market. 
We'll talk about why nerds rule the NBA, uh, and we'll be we will begin our defensive shaming of Trey Young, um, as well as talk about the crazy last two playoff spots in the West and who might claim those. We started that discussion today, but for now, that's it. We are turning off the phantom power. Cheers. <laughs>